This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. You're listening to Valley Football First and Goal, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference on the lineupmedia.fm network. Now, your host, Kelly Burke. Welcome to the MVFC First and Goal Podcast, where we just wrapped up the opening weekend of conference play in the Valley. Here to dissect the results and league, now six weeks into the season, is Bison 1660 radio host Keith Brake. You can catch Keith's show, The Breakdown, 4 to 6 p.m. Central, every day in Fargo. Keith, good to talk to you. How are you? Kelly, good to talk to you as well. And uh, you can also catch Kelly on Mondays at uh, about 4.30 uh, on the show. Uh, she's, uh, uh, you, you, you know, it's great to, to be able to talk some talk Valley football with somebody, especially on a Monday. Like I like to keep Monday as low maintenance as possible because booking guests on the front end of the weekend is, is such a scramble. So uh, it's uh, always great to have you on. I'm doing great. Uh, camped out in the home office uh, today as, as we get ready for a weekend, another weekend of Valley football. This was a wild first weekend in Valley football. So what would you say is the biggest surprise from opening weekend of Valley play that you saw? Uh, The biggest surprise, I think, was probably just, it was kind of a disappointment. You know, Illinois State was a team that I think they might have been a little bit higher in the polls and and we might have been a little bit higher on them uh, than than what they were at the beginning of the year. But you look at the way the injuries piled up uh, watching that team. They are completely one dimensional on offense. Uh, James Robinson is a dude. He is an NFL running back and he was when he is in a rhythm, he is really difficult to stop. But their passing game, especially with the injuries to their top two wide receivers, was virtually non-existent. Their defense was stout, but Ridgeway was just uh, – he was pushed out of the way by some guys who uh, double-teamed him in the middle uh, with Carson Schooning and, and the two guards for the Bison. Uh, I think Illinois State you – know, Cole Jurek, who does Bison game day with me, played for North Dakota State, uh, was part of that, uh, that, that 2013 undefeated season. He said – Going in, he thought Illinois State was the fifth best team in the Missouri Valley. And after that performance and seeing Youngstown State and Northern Iowa and the way they kind of slugged it out, I'm I'm inclined to agree with him. I, I think that's probably the bigger disappointment. I thought they were the number three team. I thought they were a team that would challenge South Dakota State, but uh, not 100% sure it's in the cards uh, for the Redbirds this year. I do think, though, they are going to be able to get off the postseason schneid this year and, and make the playoffs. That, that For the Valley, though, that, that's been the biggest surprise for me. I agree with you. The, the biggest disappointment for me with regards to Illinois State right now is their defense. I just mm-hmm. – they got pushed around so much, I thought, by the Bison offensive line. I mean, they just got manhandled up front. Um, you know, and then you look at on offense, you know, the thing that stood out to me about the Redbirds is that Brady Davis was under duress, it seems like, on almost every play. I mean, he, if he wasn't getting sacked, he was having to scramble out of the pocket constantly. So, you know, aside from when James Robinson had the ball, you know, they couldn't get any traction offensively because he didn't have any time to throw. Right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, that's, that's a number of factors. I mean, one, you're missing 26 of your 50 receptions coming into the ball game, and you you don't have guys that you trust to to get open against experienced corners in Marquise Bridges and Josh Davis for North Dakota State. 
or rather Josh Hayes uh, for for North Dakota State. Josh Davis is the running back at Weber State, but uh, Josh Hayes is is a very good corner for the Bison. Um, the, the, you don't have the receivers to get open. Your offensive line, really good run blocking, but you're facing off against some pretty athletic defensive ends. Derek Tuska is a day three NFL draft pick for for the Bison uh, on on the edge, and he gave. Uh, Illinois State's offensive line fits. They moved him around. They got him off the the big left tackle, got him to the right side of the offensive line, and and he was chewing people up. Uh, He even actually missed Davis on a sack and then was able to to recover, come back, and get the sack anyway after Davis slipped out of his grasp. So uh, he was very impressive. I thought the pass rush in general was very good uh, for NDSU. And and, uh, the the gap between those two teams is a little bit wider than I thought it would be. And and North Dakota State played a a suffocating game last year at the Fargo Dome against Illinois State. It ended 28-14, but the Bison were up 28-0 going into the fourth quarter or early fourth quarter. And Illinois State got a couple of touchdowns, kind of oh-by-the-way scores late. North Coast State held Illinois State out of the end zone altogether. They even had a play which should have been a touchdown uh, on video review that uh, the referee's uh, signal was down at the two-yard line, and Illinois State couldn't get it in. Yeah, the, and, the, the Rutkovich, the big, the Rutkovich right, the, pass yeah, play. That was the biggest pass play uh, the, that the Bison have allowed all season, and it still didn't result in points. And I think you do need to talk a little bit about, and we probably need to ultimately reassess how good this Bison team is as well, because their defense, when they've been on the field in five games, Kelly, they've allowed four touchdowns, and two of them were against Delaware after the game was already out of hand. So this team, this defense in particular, has been really, really stout and has given the offense every opportunity to go down the field the other way and execute and open up football games. You lead me into my next question, actually. How oh, perfect. Much, yeah, how much did we, the media, underestimate this youthful NDSU team? Well, when the season ended last year, I immediately started making the comparisons to the 2014 team for the 2019 team because 2013 and 2018 got compared a lot. Of course, those are the two teams that went undefeated over the course of this run for the Bison. And at the end of 2013... Uh, their head coach took an FBS job. Their starting quarterback graduated. They graduated a big senior class, and they had to play a lot of young guys. And they went out and won a national title anyway. But, Kelly, I'll be honest with you. I think this 2019 team is considerably more talented than that 2014 team was. And the gap between North Dakota State and even the two, three, and four teams in, in FCS, which I think are in no particular order, James Madison, Montana, and South Dakota State, I, I, I think that gap is, is, has gotten wider. Again, uh, North Dakota State has just been recruiting at such a high level for the last several years and has continued to do so this year. They've got an excellent haul that's going to sign uh, here in about uh, 10 weeks. Uh, but I'm just continually blown away by the level of talent on display with this team. This is a top 35 team in college football, and I did not expect that coming in. The expectation was still Frisco. The expectation was still a national championship, but I think this team is closer to that expectation at the start than several North Dakota State teams have been that have gone on to win national titles. 
I would agree with you in a lot of regards. I think this this year's Bison team, I think if you put them in any Power 5 conference, they would finish in the top half easily. I, I, I would tend to agree. I mean, there, there's... They're not going to run the table in a Power Five conference, but no. I do think in the it, they could they could take a couple of games off a couple of Big Ten West teams, especially after watching Nebraska and Northwestern last week. I, I think the the Bison could take some some games off some of those the the bottom half teams in the Big Ten West, bottom half teams in the Big Ten East for sure. This this is a middle of the pack Power Five team. There was a lot of hype, Keith, surrounding Trey Lance, the the redshirt freshman quarterback for the Bison. Um, you know, and his potential, and he was a big signee, obviously, for the for the Bison when they got him. Right now, he is the FCS leader in passing efficiency, and he's second in the country in completion percentage. How much has he even exceeded expectations of what we thought he could be stepping in his freshman year? I think he's better than Easton Stick. And, and that's crazy to say, but uh, Lance has an outstanding arm. He is so poised in the pocket. He has been extremely accurate with his throws. When he misses, it's usually maybe it's a little bit behind a guy or it's it's something that hits him right in the numbers and they can't quite make the catch or maybe it's a little bit awkward off the back shoulder of a tight end uh, where it's a tough catch to make. But uh, overall, he's been very precise with his throws and he hasn't had to throw the ball a ton. Uh, he's been able to run as well. He has lowered the shoulder at times, which I know Matt Entz kind of winces when he sees his quarterback drop a shoulder on a corner, but uh, <laughs> he did that on the uh, the game-sealing touchdown against UC Davis uh, and, and just overall has looked extremely strong uh, in all facets of what North Dakota State asks the quarterback to do. I, I think even after seeing him for four games last year, Kelly, and seeing what he could do with his legs, what he has been able to do with his arm has definitely exceeded expectations for me and I think has exceeded expectations for everyone who's not in that meeting room on a day-to-day basis. Going back to this past weekend for a second, you know, you and I had had discussions last week on your radio show um, with regards to to Indiana State and where they were at. How much of a disappointment was their performance in, in South Dakota this weekend to get shut out by the Coyotes who have really struggled defensively, especially with injuries? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously Ryan Boyle getting hurt and, and being done for the, the season is a, a devastating loss for for a, an Indiana State offense that had postseason expectations coming into this year. I was more disappointed and, and have been more disappointed, Kelly, all season in their defense. Uh, you look at 42 points allowed to Dayton, that's not going to get it done. Uh, Eastern Kentucky and Eastern Illinois are, well, Eastern Illinois is, doesn't have much. Eastern Illinois might might not win a game this year. Uh, Eastern Kentucky was a, a disappointing team offensively, but giving up 38 points to this USD team, and Austin Simmons is good. He's very good, but at the same time, letting him run all over you the way that, that he did uh, against the Sycamores, 138 yards on nine carries for the quarterback, a guy who typically likes to sit in the pocket and sling it. I just I was extremely disappointed by that and just kind of flabbergasted it at the inability of Indiana State to get stops, period, on defense, but especially on the ground against a team that 
uh, we, we've talked about their offensive line struggles in the past. Simmons has had to to, to run for his life behind the line of, line of scrimmage to extend plays. Uh, you know, Kai Henry hasn't been able to get a whole lot going. He ran for 100 yards uh, against the Sycamores as well. Uh, I think that's been the biggest disappointment for me with the Sycamores isn't even their offense. You know, with with the the injuries, the expectations are kind of diminished. But that defense has just been gashed too many times uh, for me to to sit back and say that this is this is still a playoff team. I think honestly, after that loss, they're they're looking at at being done uh, in time for Thanksgiving. There's been a number besides Trey Lance. There's been a number of freshmen that have made a big impact on the league in their first season. Uh, you know, guys like Will McElveen, the quarterback at Northern yeah. Iowa, um, even Jabori Gibbs. I know he's been limited a little bit by missing a couple games with uh, a hand injury. Uh, SIU's Javon Williams at the running back spot. Yep. And obviously it's more on the, on the offensive side of things we see this impact. But why are these freshmen making an impact so immediately? This is not just a Valley trend. This is a college football trend. I mean, you think about it. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a national championship game at the FBS level where uh, the, the team that ultimately – the team was trailing. They made a change of quarterback. Uh, and the quarterback who came in and, and led them down the field uh, on drive after drive was Tua Tagovailoa. Uh, he he's a, he was a redshirt freshman, I believe, at the time. You know, Jalen Hurts was a redshirt freshman when he took over at Alabama before Tagovailoa displaced him. Trevor Lawrence is uh, was a, was a freshman at, at Clemson. You know, you're seeing more and more young players around college football who are able to uh, step in immediately and contribute. And I think part of that is a trickle down effect of conditioning. Uh, athletes understand, and maybe there are more coaches and resources available to high-level athletes now than there were, say, 15 years ago, that allow them to prepare their bodies physically to compete in Division One college football. Lance isn't the only freshman who is is doing good things as well uh, for, for the Bison. Kobe Johnson is a true freshman yeah, who's getting true. on the field at running back yeah. for, for North Dakota State uh, as well. They pulled his red shirt uh, beginning with this game against Illinois State. He ran for 100 yards uh, against Delaware. And Tyler Roll has effusive praise for Johnson, the offensive coordinator, a young man they got out of the Atlanta area. Uh, and they are definitely going back. Uh, according to uh, to Coach Roll, after what they got yeah, from he, Kobe and what they saw down there, and Kobe was a late ad, wasn't he? he yes, made... he was a he was a late ad. Uh, he was somebody who just kind of got lost in the in the shuffle of a big talent pool uh, down in in uh, in Georgia in the big metro uh, in Atlanta, and I I just think it's generally a conditioning thing that these athletes are more physically ready to compete in college football than they were 15 years ago, 20 years ago, where you had to uh, sit out that year. You had to get into the weight room. And offensive linemen and defensive linemen probably still do. You know, pulling a red shirt there is is an emergency situation. Like Logan McCormick a couple years ago when Greg Menard tore his ACL in training camp. Uh, but I, I still think that if you are a skilled player in college football, you are looking at more opportunities to get on the field early if you are physically ready, and more guys than ever are physically ready to contribute here. Looking ahead at, at the Week 2 matchups, we have Western Illinois is at Indiana State, uh, Northern yep. Iowa at North Dakota State. That's obviously a ranked matchup. South Dakota visiting Missouri State, South Dakota State 
will be in Youngstown. That's another ranked matchup. And then Illinois State will try to rebound at SIU. When you when you hear and look at those week two matchups, what stands out to you? I think there are a couple of extremely pivotal games. I'm very intrigued to see how uh, South Dakota State goes to Youngstown. That's a place where they've kind of had some fits and starts over the past a few years. And it's a, it's a place where they need to be able to go in and win. Youngstown is going to be looking for a win uh, after some frustration at the Unidome. Again, not something they're unfamiliar with. I don't think they've won there in two decades. So uh, I, I look at that matchup and that's interesting to me. I am intrigued to see how Southern Illinois bounces back. I, I think that team is more talented than, than two and three suggests. And uh, Illinois State's got to be careful going to Carbondale because they could find themselves walking away with a loss uh, if, if they come out flat. And then, of course, uh, the Bison and UNI, this is always a, a big-time clash. Uh, but honestly, after seeing their struggles in the run game, this team is averaging fewer than three yards a carry uh, on the ground. Uh, McIlvain has been uh, good and will be good for several years to come, uh, but he still has some freshman moments. I, I would not be surprised if this game looks similar to the one that North Coast State played against Illinois State. I, I could see that for sure. And, you know, you mentioned the Illinois State factor in Carbondale. Think back to two years ago, they went into Carbondale yeah. and got destroyed by Southern. I think the final score was 42 to 7. Um, and that was the year that. SIU was just having an absolutely awful season. Yeah, a lot of people like to talk about the the Bison hangover, and uh, I haven't looked at the uh, the expected points and the performance versus expected points for uh, for for teams that have played North Dakota State. Uh, there's not really a lot of truth to it when it comes to wins and losses. But uh, I'd be very interested to see how an Illinois State team that played a physical NDSU opponent and had to stay on the field on defense for over 35 minutes uh, has to to go out and handle a team that's going to hit them with a lot of speed like Southern Illinois will. You know, one thing I thought about, too, with Illinois State last night is the fact that you look at the last couple of seasons, they have not started well at all with regards to their Valley openers. Uh, You even think back to last year when they went to Missouri State and the Bears pulled the shocker in Springfield, um, for whatever reason, it seems like they've come out fairly flat the last couple of years to open Valley play. They have. And it, it's interesting to, to see that time and time again. And you wonder, it's like, okay, how much of that is a strength of schedule factor in non-conference play? How much are we looking at uh, uh, this team and saying, oh, wow, Illinois State's going to be good because they're, you know, three and one or they're three and oh. And it's because, you know, one of their games was St. Xavier and one of their games was Eastern Illinois. And uh, then then one of their games was uh, was a, a serious challenge. You know, uh, those sorts of things can can maybe skew the perception a little bit. But I, I think we all want to believe because you look at the talent, you look at the coaching staff. Everybody is a believer in Brock Spack. We all know he's got the ability to deliver a national championship caliber team. I think we're all ready to believe when we see 3-0, and 3-1 uh, Illinois State, and then they just they lay an egg somewhere along the way. And whether that egg was against North Dakota State, where, frankly, virtually nothing went right for them in that football game, no. or it's somewhere down the road and, and we haven't quite seen it yet. Um, Illinois State is a team that just seems to to confound the observer uh, year after year. They are always sluggish in Valley play, you're right, 
and that really puts them behind the eight ball later in the season. Uh, their schedule, though, does not let up in the second half. Their last four games, they've got at South Dakota State and at Youngstown State, uh, the hammock uh, or hammocking Missouri State uh, in between those two. So, I mean, you 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 could if you don't show up or if you're banged up, if you got a lot of injuries still, you could go one and two in that stretch and and, and find yourself on the outside looking in in the postseason. I did think it was interesting. Brock Spack did say in the post-game press conference that this year's team, obviously he was just a really disappointed in his team's performance, especially defensively, but he did say that this year's team reminds him a lot of that 2014 squad when they had Trey Roberson. Um, and he said, you know, we were horrible for the first six to seven weeks. And then obviously <laughs> they got rolling. Yeah. And, and we'll see if that was just uh, an indicator of, the gap between North Dakota State and Illinois State, or if it's a sign of things to come uh, for the Redbirds. And with a road trip to Carbondale, like I said, that team is 2-3, and three, but that is deceptive. Uh, they will hang around in that game if Illinois State lets them. We'll know fairly quickly, though, if the Redbirds are going to be able to bounce back. Besides North Dakota State, who is the hottest team heading into Week 2 of Valley play? That's a tough question. I mean, I, I would look at it and probably say South Dakota State, honestly. You know, um, the, as far as a team that is hot, a team that has played pretty well overall, especially considering they've missed Jabori Gibbs for a couple of games. He had a hand injury, and he probably, if it were the Valley, he probably would have played through it. But since it's Long Island and Drake, you know, don't don't take the risk. He came back against Southern Utah, and he was electric, and, and Pierre Strong Really, really good for them in, in the run game uh, last week against SIU. Just absolutely bombarded uh, that that front seven and, and got to the second level more than once, uh, averaging more than 11 yards a, a rush and made life pretty easy uh, for Gibbs overall. Uh, that said, I'm not entirely sure how well that team has been tested in its FCS schedule to this point. Long Island is a team that basically just got cobbled together from two schools uh, uh, in New York. And uh, Drake, not much there. Drake might win the Pioneer League, but that doesn't say much relative to Valley competition. Southern Utah is the worst team in the big sky. I hate to say that, but that that's the truth. And Southern Illinois is a team that, that South Dakota State, if they've got national championship expectations, should expect to beat by 18 points. That should not be something where they have to make the adjustment in the second half, uh, trailing 10 to 9, and come out and, and, and score 19 unanswered to, to, to have to do that to win that game that way. So I'm very intrigued to see how they do against Youngstown State. There's a team that you're talking about run of form, though. I would say it's probably the Jackrabbits if it's not the Bison. Which Valley defense has taken the biggest step forward this year? I mean, I obviously love what North Coast State's been doing. Um, SDSU has, has done good things as well. If I were to highlight a particular defense, though, I'd, I'd say Youngstown State. I know they gave up 21 points to, to Northern Iowa, but ultimately that team just feels a lot more coherent this year. Than, than last year, Kelly, and maybe you can speak to that a little bit because you talk to folks in Northeast Ohio a little bit more than I do because, uh, you know, not having Justice Reed, having him get go down for the year, losing a starting safety for the year, having some of the cultural issues that they had in the locker room where, you know, uh, Bo Pelini was out there on the record questioning the motivation of some of his guys, uh, that Youngstown State team looks like it has taken a big leap forward, particularly defensively, in what it's uh, able to do on a play-to-play -play basis. 
And I think that's going to be a really tough opponent for both South Dakota State and North Dakota State to go into the Ice Castle at night and, and try to, uh, to, to take down in a way that bolsters their resume. I would agree. I think, you know, the return of, you mentioned Justice Reed, Kyle Hedges is the, the safety you were talking about. And then you look yeah. at, too, the, the turnover department, you know, the number of turnovers they've been able to force. I mean, they are way in the positive as far as turnover ratio goes. And I think that's been, you know, and their ability to, to get pressure on to opposing quarterbacks, I think, has been a huge difference maker for the Penguins this year. With regards to Austin Simmons, you know, he's he's a guy, he's the Offensive Player of the Week, um, currently was named it. And should be. Yes, yes. Um, named it last night. Um, he's had a number of monstrous performances this year that have frankly gone to, gone to naught for a lot of the time because of how bad the defense has been. Uh, would we be talking, as far as with Austin Simmons, would we be talking that he could be a possible Walter Payton candidate if he was playing on a better team. I think he'll probably I think he could end up being a Walter Payton candidate anyway because I mean you look at Devlin Hodges last year now Hodges is obviously uh, he might be the starting quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers next week because uh, Roethlisberger's done for the year and uh, Mason Rudolph got knocked into to, to two months from now with a, with a really hard hit. Uh, so he could be a, a guy who is playing in the National Football League fairly early in his career. He was at Samford last year, and Samford, Kelly, was bad. I mean, they were bad. Uh, but uh, Hodges won the Walter Payton Award anyway. He became the most prolific passer by yardage in FCS football history. So uh, I don't think playing on a, a mediocre defensive team or a bad defensive team is necessarily a, a deal breaker for Simmons. If he continues to produce as a dual threat quarterback like he did uh, against Indiana State, if he has even three or four more games like that, and he might have another game like that this week against Missouri State. They've still got to play Western Illinois, so there are, are options for him out there to have those sorts of big games. I think if South Dakota goes, you know, four and eight or five and seven, Simmons will absolutely be in the conversation for the Walter Payton Award uh, if 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 uh, if anybody is actually paying attention uh, to to what he's doing uh, on a, a week to week basis. But then again. He might also, in the last three weeks of the year, play Youngstown State, North Dakota State, South Dakota State, get sacked 12 times, uh, <laughs> you know, have to throw, you have to chuck up the ball a ton and throw three or four interceptions, and maybe that takes him out of that consideration. So uh, it's it's all about performance for a quarterback on a mediocre team. If if you are uh, if you are able to pump out the yardage consistently on the air and on the ground, which Simmons has the opportunities to do. I think even if your team is just below average, you still have the ability to get national recognition for the body of work you put in. My conversation with Keith Brake continues in just a second. But if you're enjoying this edition of the MVFC First and Goal podcast, check out all the lineup media group offerings, sports and non-sports podcasts. Now back to the show. At this point of the football season, we are heading into to week seven. Keith, who would you consider the best running back in the Missouri Valley Conference? James Robinson. And it's not even a question. Uh, Robinson is a, I think he's a day two NFL draft pick. Um, he is huge. Uh, Brock Spack compared him to Mike Allstott, which I love that comparison uh, because he is a big, burly, 
physical runner, and if you try to arm tackle him, uh, he will make it a very long day for you. Uh, he's just is so punishing in the middle. And Illinois State was able to do some things with him early against North Dakota State. And, and I think a defense that doesn't have quite the same sort of uh, level of coaching and level of, of, of talent and level of athlete that you see with the Jabril Cox or even a younger guy like Jackson Hankey, who's been able to step in uh, very early in his career for NDSU and contribute out of Park River, North Dakota. Uh, I think if you have a team that doesn't have that level of athlete, Robinson is going to be able to consistently cash them for big yards. And he is also a very durable running back, which is not something that you necessarily see a whole lot anymore. He he is the traditional tried and true feature back for Illinois State. And scouts rave about him and coaches rave about him. Opposing players uh, will will talk about him and say, man, this guy is, is a real pain in the derriere to play against. Uh, I think it's James Robinson absolutely is the best running back in the Valley, hands down. He most definitely has the stiff arm down, I'll tell you that. He does. He very much does. He he's got all of the moves down. Honestly, he's just the 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 kind of power back that you would readily associate with the style of football that's played in the Missouri Valley, uh, and and he takes all of the, the 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 power tools to the next level. Yeah, you know, and I'm always impressed when I watch him, especially you know as he's eluding defenders and gets an open like just his shiftiness and ability to to completely change directions yeah it's it, it is you think a guy who's that size like he's he's a fair i mean he's a fairly burly guy you you'd think he'd have a tough time you know getting a defender out of his shoes but he's able to make some some nice moves and and, and be elusive in the tackle as well when he needs to be uh i still think he's at his best when he when he runs in traffic but he's got a wide array of of, uh, of of moves to utilize to, to get you whether off to the side or, or get you on, on your back uh, as he runs over you. And, and he's another guy. I think if he continues to produce at a high level, is going to be a Walter Payton candidate at the end of the year as well. You alluded to the scheduling specifically with South Dakota State. Does scheduling a soft non-conference schedule like the Jackrabbits had this year, you know, with the exception they they played Minnesota to open right. the year, um, or, you know, Youngstown State is more a, a school that comes to mind with a soft non-conference schedule. Does that come back to bite you when you get to Valley play? Yes and no. On the one hand, you reduce the risk of injuries by a, a decent amount uh, percentage-wise uh, when it comes to playing teams that maybe – don't necessarily have that uh, that that ability to to play the style of football that that Valley teams uh, are used to playing against each other, and also when you don't have a tense game, you have the opportunity to get some other guys in there, and that reduces the risk of injuries to your starters. But also, I look at I look at it this way: if you have an expectation of contending for a national championship. You anticipate playing games in November and December, and throughout the year, you should find every opportunity you can to play teams that are going to more than likely, in your estimation, be there after Thanksgiving. Now, UC Davis was a team we thought was going to be there after Thanksgiving. They've had three straight losses. The wheels have come off 
in California, and the Bison didn't play particularly well anyway in that football game. Turns out their best win of the year so far might have been the University of North Dakota, uh, <laughs> which which could find a way to, to get into the postseason. They have a very winnable path uh, for them going forward. But um, you want to schedule aggressively. You want to schedule tough if you want to be prepared for the kinds of teams that you're going to face at the end of the year. You can say, well, the Valley prepares us for that. And yeah, that's true, but not every team that you play at that level and, and that at that point in the season plays the same style of football that the Missouri Valley does. You might face a, a high-tempo spread team that wants to run 100 plays in a game. Uh, you know, you might face a triple option team at some point. And yeah, every triple option is, is different, but you want to have some sort of basis between your players' ears for every type of opponent you can play. And I don't think you get that by playing uh, a bunch of flimsy shotgun spread teams with 40 scholarships in the NEC. No disrespect to those programs. I mean, they they do good things with the resources they have. Uh, Central Connecticut State almost beat Eastern Michigan a couple weeks ago. But uh, at the same time, you want to challenge yourself with the best. And if you don't challenge yourself with the best – you can't expect to be among the best at the end of the year. What is more important in the Valley, in your opinion, having a good quarterback or good lineman? The answer to that question is yes. But <laughs> I, I think, I think uh, honestly, you need to be able to give that quarterback time. And you don't need to give him a ton of time. You know, a lot of sacks, when we talk about how prolific defensive lines are, and you say, oh, that offensive line is so porous. If you go and look at a lot of sacks, more, plenty of them are more than two and a half seconds, and two and a half seconds is it's interesting because we're in Minnesota, we're in North Dakota. Minnesota's right on the other side of the Red River. For me, it's I can literally look out the back door of my house and see it. It's uh, that's where Vikings fans are all up in a tizzy about uh, Kirk Cousins, and Cousins has averaged more than two and a half seconds on about sixty percent of his throws. Um, he's he's got plenty of time to get the ball out. That's the baseline for getting the ball out at the next level. You look at a lot of quarterbacks and they just hold on to the ball too long. Uh, your offensive line has to protect to a point, but nobody's going to be able to hold up for three and a half, four and a half seconds, the same way that defensive backs can't cover for four or five seconds. Uh, I, I think the, the real difference maker is a quarterback who can get the ball out on time, who can extend plays with his feet, who can do things, extraordinary things and make your team look a little bit better than it was. And to make that case, I'll go back to Chris Streveler. Streveler's in the Canadian Football League right now. He took that that South Dakota team that has not been to the playoffs before or since and made them into a team that really gave everybody in the Missouri Valley Football Conference fits. You have opportunities to win games that you probably shouldn't have opportunities to win if you have a high-level quarterback, whether you have five good linemen or five great linemen or five average linemen. It doesn't necessarily matter if your quarterback is able to do some extraordinary things with the ball, whether it's with his arm or his legs. How do the the teams in the conference that are kind of perennially in that seven to 10 spot catch up to the rest of the league? This is a really difficult question to answer. And I'm glad you asked me because you look at the financial wherewithal of the teams at the top. And you look at the financial wherewithal of the teams at the bottom. And you look at the resources of Western – you kind of see a team like Western Illinois. Western 
has hit on a couple of coaching hires. Bob Nielsen was obviously terrific. He got the South Dakota job out of it. Charlie Fisher, who you and I both know well, uh, was uh, really, really good there and, and recruited really well there. And uh, the jury's still out on uh, on Jared Elliott as he rebuilds that program. But um, they have maybe out out uh, outperformed their financial resources and outperformed their uh, facilities resources as well. Uh, but it, it all comes down to how much money are you able to commit to the football program for coaching staffs, for re- not just not just hiring a good coach, but retaining a good head coach and good assistant coaches. That's how I think North Dakota State has really cultivated its advantage over the rest of the Missouri Valley. The, the turnover on the coaching staff comes once every four or five years when half the staff goes with the head coach to an FBS school. And there's not that slow leak of, I got the linebacker's job at an OVC school. I got the, the defensive coordinator position at a SOCON program. You know, there's not that that slow leak of, of talent out of the coaching room that allows you to uh, maintain recruiting classes, maintain recruiting relationships for a long period of time. And I can give you an example of that. Atif Austin, who uh, is, uh, I believe, now at Northern Illinois. He was with the New England Patriots for a little bit. That's where he left the Bison to go. He was the wide receivers coach. He was the one who opened up the Tampa pipeline in a big way for for North Dakota State. And Noah Polly goes down there now. He's the wide receivers coach. He recruits the Tampa area. And, and he said before, Atif did such a great job that that all I have to do is is go down here and and maintain relationships. The brand is so well known, the team is so well known, and what this program can do for for our prospects is so well known uh, that all you have to do is go down there, shake a few hands, say you're with North Dakota State, and they say, "Oh, right this way." So <laughs> I think the ability to uh, retain and develop coaches. Uh, allows you to retain uh, talent from recruiting class to recruiting class because you retain those relationships. You're able to then build on little successes, turn them into big successes over the long term. That's how you catch up. And uh, that, that all comes back to money. And there are a lot of schools in this conference that simply don't have those financial resources. North Dakota State's uh, uh, donations, contributions uh, have doubled in the last six years. Their ticket sales have skyrocketed in the last six years. Merchandising is off the charts. And all this time, student fees and university support have remained relatively flat. The Bison have built this dynasty off of their fan base and off of their fan base's willingness and ability to give, whether that's ticket sales, whether that's donations through team makers, whether that's just buying jerseys and T-shirts and watching games on TV and increasing demand for the television or the radio product. Uh, that's how North Dakota State has built this machine. Not everybody has the ability to build a similar machine, but if you want to do it, you've got to find a way to do what Western Illinois has done and and sort of outperform your financial resources. And even then, you're looking at a two- to four-year window where you're like, okay, we're going to be really competitive. We're going to be the third or fourth team in the Valley and then you're going to have to fall off again. And and it's it's sort of the mid-major basketball cycle of we're good for a couple of years, we're down for a couple of years, back and forth we go. You mentioned the, the coaches. What has been the biggest coordinator impact this offseason? For the Valley? Yeah, I mean, for, the val- for the Valley, as far as, you know, whether it's 
a brand new coordinator coming in or a coordinator, you know, a, a coach transitioning into a coordinator role that was already, you know, on the coaching staff? It's really interesting because I obviously I look at, at North Dakota State's coordinators uh, in, in up close. I talk to them every Thursday. Uh, David Braun came in from uh, from northern Iowa and he is someone who is right in line with Matt Ince's philosophy of uh, teach the game, uh, let the players ask questions, let the players learn, give them an opportunity to learn because that's how you get them to take ownership in what you're doing as a, as a football program. And I mean, obviously the, the results for Braun's defense kind of speak for themselves. He calls the plays, uh, he lays out the game plan, uh, and kind of sits in and, and offers advice, but it's Braun's defense. And Braun's defense has only allowed four touchdowns all season in five games with the defense on the field. And two of those were to Delaware after the game was, I think it was like 38 to three uh, at one point or 38 to eight. Uh, and the game was already over in the fourth quarter. So the defense has been pretty extraordinary. And Tyler Roll has transitioned uh, to offensive coordinator at North Dakota State. And I think that's had a, an interesting impact as well because it's a little bit closer to the traditional power run game that North Dakota State has, has played in the past. Uh, but it, it plays it at a slightly higher tempo. And I think that's a really interesting change also. Uh, I know South Dakota State has made changes at the coordinator spots. I think those have yet to really um, show what sort of fruit they're going to bear. Um, but those those are the two that I look at, the two staffs I look at, that where you've seen changes made that have allowed those teams to maybe stretch an advantage uh, over some of the other um, other. Uh, teams in the Valley and Northern or Youngstown state uh, bringing Carl Polini back into the program, I think has been a, a huge asset to, uh, to that coaching staff as well. Bo obviously trusts Carl implicitly as you would expect. Uh, and uh, he, he's done a lot to, to help in all facets uh, of that team uh, to get better and to be in a position where they're seriously thinking about the playoffs for just what the third time since 2000. What has to happen for the Missouri Valley to get four teams into the postseason? I think everybody has to continue to play to expectations. North Dakota State, I mean, you, you look at it, they might trip up in Brookings. They might not. Uh, Northern Iowa, in, in all candor, I don't know that it's going to be much closer than it was uh, with Illinois State uh, this this week. Uh, and I'm really wondering about that. And I think a lot of people up here are wondering about that. But for the rest of the Valley, South Dakota State, obviously, I mean, they, they can't trip up. Um, Youngstown State's got to find some wins. I think they probably need to go five and three in the Missouri Valley to, to get in. And then you're looking at three. And you and I talked about this last week that uh, we think you and I is the, the t- was the two and two team that had the best shot of uh, getting into the playoffs. They've got to uh, continue to to play at a high level. Getting a win over Youngstown State is a is a nice feather in the cap to get them started in uh, in Valley play. Uh, I, I think those are probably honestly the four teams that the, the league is looking at getting in. Um, Illinois State is a fifth that I think has a realistic shot, uh, but their their passing game has got to get better uh, if, if they want to get into to the postseason. Uh, they can't just ride Robinson all the way to uh, to five and three or six and two in the Missouri Valley. It's, it's going to take a lot more than that this year. I'm interested to see what Southern Illinois does, but I think if the Bison, the Jackrabbits, the Panthers and the Penguins – all play to their expectations, more or less, which is five and three or better in the Missouri Valley. And for North Dakota State, it might be seven and one. Uh, then, then you're looking at four teams, I think, pretty comfortably 
And you look around FCS, Kelly, and the SoCon's way. The Southern Conference is a one-bit league this year. Uh, they might squeak a second in with Wofford on the bubble. The Big Sky is eating its own. Montana, Montana State, and Weaver <laughs> State kind of separated themselves. UC Davis has come apart. Eastern Washington's a mess. Um, Sacramento State is better than expected, but the jury is still out on how good that team will be when they really get into the heart of, of Big Sky play. I think the CAA is looking at probably – three to four, maybe five teams that, that ultimately get in. You look at JMU, Villanova, they're both good. Uh, Towson is solid. Maine is okay. New Hampshire's going to be scrapping for a spot. Stony Brook will probably get in. Um, there, But there's still a lot to be determined there. I think you're looking at four teams, maybe five for them. I think you could be looking at four teams, maybe five for the Valley as well. Does it feel like there has been more major injuries this year? than in years past? Not really. I think just the media landscape has, has had us putting um, so many of these injuries under a microscope and the 24-hour news cycle that we live in and that, that you know, I mean, in fairness, we do contribute to that 24-hour news cycle <laughs> when, it comes to, when it comes to college sports. But I think that's probably the biggest thing is just we have more time to spend looking at these injuries and we have more time to to um, clutch pearls and wring hands over what these injuries entail. I don't feel like there have been more significant injuries, season-ending injuries, than there usually are when you look at college football in totality. Now, for some teams, there have been more season-ending injuries. For some teams, there have been fewer. The Bison lost Brendan Cook uh, to, to a shoulder injury for the season. Uh, he could conceivably come back right around uh, championship week, but I don't know that they want him back necessarily. Uh, wanted to just get some rest rather than uh, have to, uh, to to play in, uh, in, in one game like that at the end of the year after having not played football for over two months. But they have had only one really significant injury uh, that has impacted their their performance on the football field. And even then, it hasn't impacted it that much. Uh, I don't feel like there are more injuries than usual, no. Keith, there is a new California bill that, that this all came out last week. It's a proposal yep. by the, the governor in California about paying athletes. Fair Pay to Play Act is what it's called. And essentially, right. it, it excludes colleges in California from NCAA rules preventing student-athletes from earning compensation. What is your opinion about this this bill being proposed, and how would it affect the Valley? And and, and I guess, too, colleges beyond California, if it were Well, it's law. It, it's, it's law now. Gavin Newsom signed it last week, and, and it will go into effect in 2023. And uh, the NCAA talked about how terrible this was and, and there was so much concern over, you know, Mark Emmert, I think, called it an existential threat to the NCAA. And California legislators looked them dead in the eye and said, that's not our problem. Um, you know, the, there, there is definitely, a, a, I think, a popular will for players being able to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness the same way that a regular college student could. Uh, consider that this is not just... You know, for for a player, for a, a college athlete like Zion Williamson at, at Duke in his one unbelievable year, this is endorsement deals. This is car dealerships. This is a shoe company. Nike would probably be all over Zion Williamson uh, to to get him involved in their marketing campaigns. Uh, but for the average college football player, for a guy at North Dakota State or Illinois State or or uh, Missouri State, that's it's not necessarily the same thing. 
Uh, you think about the kicker at UCF who had his had to shut down his YouTube channel to be able to play college football. <laughs> think about the the ra- the uh, the wrestler at Minnesota who got cut because he made like thirty dollars off of a, a, a hip hop song he released, and that was only I mean that was that was six or seven years ago, right at the height of the O'Bannon case. So this has been coming for a long time. I'm fully in support of it. You know, we make money off the prowess of college student athletes. I see no reason why they cannot, especially in a small market where you have a lot of local heroes like you would in North Dakota, South Dakota, the same sort of concept that'll apply in Montana, the same sort of concept that would apply at Nebraska. That's how Scott Frost would have taken advantage of this. He was a, he was a small town or small market guy who was beloved by a statewide audience, he had a, a huge opportunity to capitalize on that success. Obviously, didn't need it. He turned out to be a really good football coach and, and made his money in that way. But he missed. Or he did not have the opportunity to to capitalize on his fame and. and other athletes who have been in similar positions who weren't great head football coaches who didn't make millions of dollars that way haven't had that opportunity to capitalize on their fame in a a very limited window as successful college athletes. I see absolutely no problem with with letting them profit off their name, image, and likeness, whether that's as a social media influencer, as a a YouTuber, as a a, a hip-hop artist, the next Lil Nas X could be playing for a, a, a team in the Missouri Valley, Kelly. Why would you deny the opportunity for a, a guy to to bring that that notoriety to your program by producing the next Old Town Road or whatever SoundCloud rap sensation there might be uh, by by denying them the opportunity to profit off their name, image, and likeness? I, I think people are overblowing the recruiting implications of this. I think it's ultimately going to to be fine, and I think North Dakota State in particular, uh, is, since that's the perspective I've been talking about this with, because uh, I've been tracking this bill for, for months now, I think the Bison are going to be fine. Uh, I think the Valley ultimately is not going to see a significant shakeup from this in particular. Uh, I, I think it's only a good thing. Uh, people have been talking about the, you know, the, the damage that we've done to college football. They did it when we limited the amount of scholarships in FBS to 85 all those years ago, so many years ago, uh, when in the '70s, when they made freshmen eligible immediately as true freshmen for the first time, uh, that then people were were talking about how what a what a threat it was to college football. People were talking about what a threat the forward pass was to college football in the 1920s. So I, I think these sorts of things get overblown, and ultimately the changes are going to be pretty negligible on the university end. They're going to be extremely beneficial on the the student-athlete end because they're going to be able to go out into the marketplace for themselves and find ways to capitalize on their athletic prowess. You know, there's it's interesting because there's this whole notion that this is only going to really benefit the, the star athletes at, at big-time schools. But thinking about it, I actually think it could even very much have the opposite effect. You know, you take a, a team like North Dakota State, I think it could actually benefit recruiting in the valley because basically when you go in to recruit somebody you could pose it to some of these players as look you could go you you know you could go to an alabama you could go to a nebraska a a big 10 school um and you you know maybe maybe you'd be first string maybe you'd be second string you potentially wouldn't be a star player or you could come to north dakota state and star for our team and 
probably get way more endorsement deals and notoriety out of it. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and that's kind of that's kind of my point with with Scott Frost. I mean, imagine what uh, Trey Lance could do with the, I mean, imagine the endorsement potential of being a starting quarterback in a state of 800,000 people that has the per capita wealth and the willingness to spend it that that the state of North Dakota does. I'm from Tennessee. I went to East Tennessee State. You know, you probably won't get that sort of endorsement potential at, at my alma mater. You probably won't even get that sort of endorsement potential at, at a place like Vanderbilt. But you will get it at a big public school with a big fan following like NDSU. If you come in and you start and you compete and you do well, uh, people are going to want to be associated with you. That's all college athletics is. It's it, college athletics advertising is. It's brand association. Um, you know, there there. It's an investment in the hopes that you get in front of eyeballs. And when people think about your brand, they think about North Dakota State football or South Dakota State football or uh, is South Dakota football and vice versa. Uh, you want that brand association. And if you are a quote-unquote small-town hero, you have the ability to make more money than the guy playing third string uh, on, on sitting on the end of the bench in Alabama. Now, there are different ways that that market leverage could work. Maybe Alabama negotiates in its equipment deal a certain amount of uh, endorsements, uh, endorsement dollar value for uh, for its, its student-athletes. Maybe there's, there's that element to it. But either way, we're going to get – market leverage for the benefit of college athletes, whether that comes from the university side negotiating with these outside sponsors or it comes from the college athletes negotiating for themselves what they are um, what they are able to go out and monetize their fame with. So I, I think it's I think it's going to be beneficial for big programs at this level because the big programs at this level tend to be small state schools. Uh, I say small state, small population state schools, NDSU, Montana, uh, and, and, and and similar schools. But ultimately, the, this is not even necessarily about the recruiting angle. It's not even necessarily about what benefits the schools. It This is all about what benefits the athlete. That's why this bill was passed into law in California. That's why Florida is ultimately considering the same thing. Tennessee, South Carolina uh, are, are also uh, mulling legislation similar to what was passed in California. Uh, this is coming. And everybody's going to have to get ready for it. And I don't think the impact is going to be, as long as everyone is prepared, uh, the existential threat that the NCAA makes it out to be. As we get ready to wrap up, what are one to two things that you are most looking forward to this final seven weeks of Valley Play? I'm not looking forward to the change in the weather. Um, <laughs> Nor am I. Gonna, uh, no, no. Well, I mean, you know, you live in Florida, so uh, I've got... Uh, I got I got a nice nice few feet of snow to look forward to. It's supposed to get really bad in, in January, so thankfully we'll be we'll be done with football by then. But uh, I guess what I'm looking forward to the most is how the middle of the pack in the valley unfolds and how they compete against each other and the teams above them like North Dakota State. Uh, how do Northern Iowa and Youngstown State compete against the Bison when uh, they are faced with uh, a team that is uh, really, frankly, a pretty special football team uh, yet again this year? We'll find out fairly quickly for, for Northern Iowa. Uh, how do those three teams in the middle, UNI, Youngstown, and Illinois State, kind of separate themselves uh, from amongst themselves? And can Southern Illinois uh, salvage uh, its season and, and play its way onto the bubble? I think it's possible, uh, and, and I'm, I'm excited to see 
how that unfolds. I'm excited to see who emerges as a possible NFL prospect. You and I have talked before about Jeremy Chin at Southern Illinois, James Robinson, obviously, Christian Rosenbaum's a name that's going to get thrown around a lot at SDSU. I think Derek Tuska is a, a, a real uh, prospect uh, for North Dakota State at, at defensive end. Uh, I think that's that's going to be really exciting as well to, to see that part of it unfold um, to see the the players emerge and become stars that we're going to see playing on Sundays next year. It's always a pleasure, and uh, I'm, we'll be doing it again in several hours on your radio show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're taping this on Monday, so um, yeah, we'll uh, be glad to uh, to have you on here in about four and a half hours. Yeah, it's uh, it's always good to talk Valley, and uh, I mean nobody knows it better than you do, Kelly. So uh, a pleasure to be on the pod. Thank you. If you like what you heard from Keith Brake in our MVFC First and Gold podcast, take a moment to share, subscribe, and leave a review. LineUpMedia.fm also is home to many other sports podcasts, shows like Two Birds on a Bat, Blues NHL podcast, and The Drop. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Tune in next week for another episode of Valley Football's First and Goal with Kelly Bird, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference only on the lineupmedia.fm network. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.